You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hi, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thanks for joining me today. This week is the holiday of Shavuot, Chagah Shavuot, which is the holiday that commemorates the giving of the Torah, Matan Torah. And so I think it's appropriate to talk about something that's really a distressing phenomenon, a universal phenomenon in the Jewish world, and that's the abandonment of Tanakh learning. What better time to address this than on the holiday of the giving of Torah? I think that Chagah Shavuot is really an appropriate time to raise this issue. And so because of the long exile, which cut off the Jew from his nationalistic development, basically crippled his ability to observe the Torah properly and even to learn properly. In the exile, the authentic Jewish idea was perverted beyond recognition. Foreign ideas mixed in with the holy Torah concepts. And when the smoke cleared, we were left just clinging to Jewish ritual with the soul of the Torah, the idea of it, thrown by the wayside. And nothing indicates more the perversion of true Torah ideals than the almost universal phenomenon of the abandonment of learning Tanakh. And when I say Tanakh, I mean the five books of Moses, that's the Torah, the Navi, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. And that comprises the entire Bible. Tanakh is an acronym for Torah, Navim, Ketuvim. And what I'm saying is that the exile of our people caused Tanakh, which should be the basis of our faith. It should be the foundation of our faith, the Holy Bible. I mean, what's more basic than the Bible? But because of the exile and the lack of a national entity, it created a problem where the Tanakh became less and less relevant in our everyday life. Because in the exile, we didn't have a national entity to speak of. All we had is the private sector, the Arba Omos of Halacha. And so our Judaism became a very private one. And so, of course, the Tanakh was left on the shelf. And that's tragic because what our nation underwent in the land of Israel in the days of the Tanakh, and it was so drastically different from what we experienced in the exile. The life in Eretz Israel before exile, it's a totally different experience. And it's such a different experience from our experience in the exile that it reached the point where we actually exiled the Tanakh from the Torah halls. That's right, Bible learning, it's like an afterthought. It's like something the Goyim do. They learn the book of Isaiah, they quote Psalms, and the Jew, even the Yeshiva Bachar, he's an ignoramus when it comes to the Tanakh because he's learning Gomorrah all day. And so by not learning Tanakh, we don't know how a normal Jew behaves. We don't learn about the Davids and the Yonatans and the Sauls and the Yoavs who were Torah scholars but went out to war to defend their land and their people. That's the kind of Jew we learn about in the Bible. And all the concepts which top today's national agenda, that's all found in the Bible if we want to look for it. Yeah, it's the Tanakh which gives us that clear and unambiguous guidance if we want it, but we have to study it. Where else are you going to learn about King David the sweet singer of Israel, the warrior, the poet, that while writing the book of Psalms, he also slew the blaspheming Philistines and he continued to fight through his entire life to enlarge the borders of Israel. Where else are you going to read about that? Where else are you going to read about Benayahu ben Yoyada and Yorv ben Shruria, who were brilliant military leaders on one hand, and the sages reveal that they were no less than heads of the Sanhedrin. They were the top religious leaders too. And yet, despite the treasure that the Bible is, despite the fact that the Tanakh is the world's most famous and influential book, it's basically banished from the halls of the yeshiva. If you go to your average Beit Midrash, your study hall, you'll find a lot of books on halacha, you'll find a lot of Shas and Mishnah and so forth. Go and try to find yourself a Bible. There's not that many of them. You might not find one. Go and try to find yourself a Chumash. 
See, you'll find the Chumash. You know why you'll find a lot of Chumashes? You'll find the Chumash. You'll find the five books of Moses, the regular Torah. You know why? Because on Shabbat, there's a Torah reading and we have to have a Chumash so we can follow the Torah reading. But you know what? If there was no Torah reading on Shabbat, I guarantee you, you would not find a Chumash in the study halls. So if that's not a distortion, then I don't know what is. Rabbi Gahana used to jokingly say, the Jews wrote the Bible and the Goyim read it. Now, like I said, the lack of Tanakh learning, it's something that developed way back in the exile. And many great, great rabbis, they criticized the Torah education system that they weren't learning Bible. You have the Gomi Vilna and his students, the Maharal, the Kliyayakar. They constantly mentioned the need to change the learning regiment because they saw the regular way of learning was all messed up. What was the learning like? Well, you teach the kid Aleph Bet, he's got to know the alphabet, a little Chumash, a little Rashi, and then straight to the Gomorrah. What about the Nach? No, he'll pick that up as he goes along. You know, you learn it on the side. This was the time-tested method of teaching in the Cheder, in the Talmud Torahs in Europe. And it's still like that today. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of young guys are turned off from learning. And again, this was criticized by the greatest rabbis who were saying, first you have to master the written law, the Tanakh. And I'll repeat it. When I say Tanakh, that's initials for the Tuf is the Torah, the five books of Moses, the Nun for Navi, the prophets, which starts with the book of Joshua and goes right through the rest of the prophets. And the Chaf is the Ktuvim, the writings, that's Psalms and Proverbs, etc. These great rabbis who are calling for a change were saying, first master the written law, the Tanakh, and then start studying the oral law. Now through the years, people did it, but they were going against the grain. And I want to bring two great, great rabbis who wrote about this. One was the great Yaakov Emden, also called the Yabetz. He lived in the 18th century. And here's what he wrote. We should start kids with the book of Leviticus and then go through the entire Tanakh. And the Sephardim are much better than the Ashkenazim. That is, the Ashkenazim do the opposite. They learn Talmud. And if they have any time left, they learn the Bible. And Yaakov Emden continues, how can you teach Mishnah and Gomorrah if you don't know the simple understanding of the Bible? That's why the sages teach us in Perkeavot, in chapter 5, that at the age of 5, the study of Tanakh should commence. At the age of 10, study the Mishnah, and 15, for the study of Talmud. That is, the Torah, it's a structured edifice with the study of Tanakh being the foundation. And so if you begin at the age of 9 to study what's really appropriate for a 15-year-old, and you bypass Tanakh study, then you're left like a building without a foundation. If you don't have the Bible down pat, then the whole structure is flimsy and it crumbles. Another great rabbi who cried out against the Torah education and how it was being given over to the kids was the Shla. And he was in the 17th century. As a matter of fact, many of us just read the blessing of the Shla that he gave to his children because that's a blessing that we say on the evening of the month of Sivan, which just passed a couple of days ago. Anyway, he says like this, the Shla in the 17th century, the way to teach a kid is to start with the book of Genesis and then go all the way through until you finish. And once you finish the written law, you can continue to the oral law. And then the Shla quotes another rabbi also from the 17th century who says that he traveled to the schools of the Sephardi Jews and he says he was shocked that the little kids knew the Tanakh already. And he speaks very poetically. He says, these little Chagavim were Anakim. That's like using the Lashon of the spies. These little grasshoppers were actually giants because they knew Tanakh so well. And he said he was crying over it. 
He says, why don't they do this in Poland? Wouldn't it be great that by the time the kid's bar mitzvah, he knows the written law and the Mishnah too? Because if you have that background, if you already know the Tanakh and Mishnah, then when you get to learning Gomorrah, it goes so much smoother. And even though you started learning Gomorrah late compared to everybody else, within a year, you'll be up to par with all those who started learning Gomorrah at five years old. Why? Because you have the solid knowledge of Tanakh and Mishnah. And he writes that he wishes that the leaders of Eastern European Jewry would legislate for the educational system to be overhauled. Anyway, it never happened. But we're talking super from rabbis who see the problems and want to fix the curriculum. And just one more thing by Yaakov Emden. He says, he says, don't be discouraged by trying to make the change. Don't worry what people will say about you. We're living at a time where everything's upside down. We're teaching kids all this, all this hair splitting stuff. Why? So the kid can give a nice Dvar Torah at his bar mitzvah. He'll be able to give over some pilpul machloket somewhere in the Talmud. But the fact is we're raising generations of ignoramuses. Because even if he's a smart kid, he's too young to understand the intricacies of the Talmud. Why should a little kid understand tractate Tubot and Nida and Gitin, all these tractates that deal with men and women and marriage? The kid doesn't know anything about that yet. And why should he start learning Baba Kama, Baba Matsya, Baba Batra? He doesn't have any experience in business. He's a little kid. Why shove that down his throat? He's not ready for it. He doesn't have life experience. Those besechters are good when you have life experience. Then you can appreciate it. How can you expect them to understand it? So we should first learn Torah according to the Pshat and build a foundation. Anyway, this really is true. You know, when you learn Torah and Tanakh early on, it stays with you because that's the age where you remember things. My father-in-law is a Yemenite Jew who came to Israel at the age of nine during the big Aliyah from Yemen in 1949. And he knew the entire Tanakh by heart. And he was just a regular guy who worked for Bezik climbing telephone poles, but because he learned properly, like Chazal teaches, from five to 10, he learned just Tanakh. You could give him a verse and he'll finish it. And if you notice in any Beit Knesset, when it's time to read from the Torah, when a Yemeni Jew gets an Aliyah, he himself reads from the Torah. He doesn't need a Balkore because they all know the Torah by heart. And they're not Nishiv all day. They're regular working guys, but they learn the right way. They learned in those impressionable years when you're really young and it sticks with you, so they remember it. Like, unfortunately for me, what do I remember? I remember the theme song to Gilligan's Island. I could say it right now. Why? Because that's what was getting stuck in my head at an early age. So I know by heart the theme song to the Brady Bunch. Now, if I was learning Torah at an early age, I'd know Torah by heart. And so the point is that this distortion in learning, it has ramifications because we're missing that nationalistic view today. Because at the end of the day, the Tanakh, it's a nationalistic book. It's about wars, Joshua, judges, Smoil, kings. It's about fighting for the land of Israel. It's about establishing a state and running it by Torah law. It's about dealing with enemies within your borders and outside your borders. That's what the stories in the Tanakh are about. And if you don't have that book as a guide, then how do you know what to do when some enemy rises his head against you? You call it a political problem. Why do you say that? Because you think the Torah is all about Shabbos and kosher food and the bedroom and the bathroom and the kitchen. But if you're learning Tanakh, you know that Judaism relates to this problem just like it relates to anything else. There's no politics in Judaism. There's no separation of church and state. The Torah addresses all these nationalist issues just like it relates to everything else. And so on the holiday of Matan Torah, on Chag 
It's time to call out for a change, just like Rabbeinu Bachaye did and the Maharal of Prague and many other great Torah leaders throughout the generations who called for an overhaul in Torah learning. And the fact is many yeshiva rabbis and leaders are pained by this very sad state. The Tanakh is neglected. And the fact is there is a thirst and an awakening amongst the masses, especially the young, to straighten things out and get back to the authentic Torah way which the sages laid out for us and received from Sinai. And so maybe at this point, I want to plug my Bible class where we cover the entire range of the Bible. You can listen on Spotify and other platforms, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes, Google that, and you'll start to understand how beautiful and deep the Bible is. It's very likely that a lot of the stories you think you know, but what we do in these classes is we put some meat on the bones, we bring some commentaries, we bring the Midrashim, so you really get a handle on what's going on. Moving on to something else, this past week when Israel celebrated its 75th anniversary, we saw the Arabs publicizing their Nakba Day. Nakba in Arabic means disaster or catastrophe because for them, the 1948 War of Independence victory, which for us, of course, commemorates the establishment of the state, for them, that marked the displacement of 700,000 Palestinians. That's how they see the victory of the 48 War of Independence that we celebrate. For them, it's Nakba Day. And every year this comes up. I remember when John Kerry said in 2018, he said that when Israel celebrates its 70th anniversary, well, the Palestinians mark a very different anniversary. 70 years, what they call Nakba or catastrophe. That's what Kerry would say in his speeches. And this year you had Rashidi Talib, that swine, pushing for Palestinian Nakba Day recognition in the United States. And she got shot down by the Republicans. But the point is, every year this comes up. What's a victory for us is a tragedy for them. And Rabbi Kahana always used to bring this up, how there's no way you really can have coexistence. It can't be. Because no matter how much you try to make the Arab love you and give him a higher standard of living, whatever you give him, there's, there's contradictions inside of the very symbols of the country. For instance, like we just mentioned, our day of independence, for them, it's a day of catastrophe. It's Nakba. We're going to hear now something that Rabbi Meir Kahana said to students at Cornell University in the mid-80s. And here he points out the absurdity of trying to think that Jews and Arabs can coexist. Now, Rabbi Kahana was a rabbi first, and the whole issue of the Arabs in Israel, it's a halacha question. But when the rabbi spoke in campuses to people who don't believe in Torah, who don't know Torah, he just brought regular logic. And so now we'll listen to him by sheer logic explaining why it can't be that Jews and Arabs can exist in the state of Israel together. Is there one person in this room, one, one person in this room who thinks that there is one Arab in Israel, one, who enjoys living in a country called the Jewish state? How would the Jews in this room like living in Jerry Falwell's Christian state? You'd love it, right? That's how they love living in a Jewish state. Israel has a basic law. It's first basic law was called the law of return. And that law, which was passed not by Kahana, God forbid, but by Ben-Gurion, he passed a law which states that Jews have an automatic right to come to Israel and become citizens. Jews. Is there one person in this room who thinks that there's one Arab who enjoys that law? If there's, if you do, you have greater contempt for Arabs than even I thought. Is there one person in this room who thinks that the Arab of Israel, one Arab, enjoys singing his national anthem? What is the national anthem of the Arab of, of Israel? Hatikva, Hatikva. 
the national anthem of Israel. Here is an Arab about to sing his national anthem. Pride courses through his veins as he sings, as he sings the words, Nefesh Yehudi Homiya, the soul of a Jew yearns. I mean, just breaks down. I mean, their pride, pride just courses through every single vein, what, through every capillary in his vein. And when he concludes his national anthem with the words, the hope of 2,000 years, tears run down his cheeks as he thinks to himself, ah, how my grandfather waited 2,000 years for the Jews to come home. Hatikva means the hope. It was the Jewish hope. It was the Arab nightmare. On Independence Day in Israel, all the Arabs rush out into the street to celebrate their defeat. It's a Jewish state, and the Arab hates it. Jewish leftists and Jewish liberals run around saying there can be coexistence. Of course there can be. If we raise the Arabs' living standards and raise their social standards, economic standards, then they'll be good Arabs. If we give them an indoor toilet, then they'll be good Arabs. Of course, people whose, whose minds run to toilets think in that way. We'll give them electricity, and then, they, and then they will love us. Is there anybody in this room who thinks that you can buy an Arab's national pride by giving him an indoor toilet? Electricity? Arabs have pride, national pride. They believe that we are thieves. They really believe it. Of course, they're wrong, but that doesn't matter. They believe it. They believe the country belongs to them. They believe we stole it from them. So we're going to go and say, I know you think we stole it from you. Here, have a toilet. What contempt for human beings. How many times have I heard not only Jewish fundraisers, but cabinet ministers in Israel talk about, we came to the country and we found a desert and we turned it into a garden. How many times have you heard that? Well, try that once on an Arab, and he'll, and he'll say to you, you're right, that, that's, that's true. But it was my desert, now it's your garden. Jewish leftists sound like some Rudyard Kipling. We will take the Arab, lower the poor Arab, raise him up, teach him, guide him, raise his living standard, and then he will like us. No, no. He won't like us if he thinks that the country is really Palestine, and that we changed it and called it Israel. That was Rabbi Meir Kahana at Cornell University. You know, the rabbi was so effective on campus. And you got to understand that in those days, he was also getting opposition big time. The first time he got to Cornell University, they actually heckled him and he couldn't finish the speech. But he came right back and gave a tremendous lecture. And I just played part of it just now for you. But just imagine what it was like on campus for him. You know, you look today and you see guys like Ben Shapiro going on campus. And they're also getting tremendous flack on campus from the leftists and the liberals. And you see Ben Shapiro just shoot him down with brilliance. But the positions he's taking are a lot easier to defend. I love to watch Ben Shapiro make a fool out of these guys or Matt Walsh. But they're defending positions that, you know, pretty logical, like is a girl a girl, is a boy a boy. Even though they're facing a hostile student body, that's a pretty easy position to defend. But Rabbi Kahana was going around in the 80s saying on campus that we have to throw out the Arabs. Now, that's a much harder position to defend on a college campus than whether a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl or whatever other woke subjects come up today. 
it's pretty easy to destroy those woke kooks you have on your campuses. And it's fun to watch. I enjoy it. But again, the rabbi here, he's taking a stand on issues that are totally not politically correct at all. And he's able to pull it off. Before ending the show, I wanted to bring something else that Rabbi Kahana would say at the end of a lot of his lectures on campus in his effort to do kiruv, to do outreach, to bring those Jews a little closer to Judaism, to give them a little Jewish pride, he would often end with the Devar Torah, which happens to be very appropriate for the holiday of Shavuot, which is coming up this Thursday. So listen to how the rabbi ends one of his campus lectures with a well-known midrash that relates to the question, why was Torah given on Mount Sinai and not another more prestigious mountain? The Talmud tells us that when God wanted to give the Torah to the Jewish people, all the mountains, the highest, the loftiest, all of them came. The tallest mountains came and each one pleaded, give me the honor. I want the Torah to be given on my peak. And God said, no, 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 no. I have a small mountain, it's called Sinai. And, I, and I'm going to give it on, on this little mountain's peak because I want to teach the Jews a lesson to be humble. Humble. The Gera Rebbe, the Rebbe of uh, Gur, was a great, great scholar and also smart. And so he asked a very, very good question. He said, I don't understand. He said, if God wanted to teach the Jew to be humble, why didn't he give the Torah in a valley? Is that not a good question? Honest. Of course it's a great You don't get more humble than if that's about the lowest you can get. That's humble. So he answered the question. He said, because God wanted to teach the Jews two lessons. One, be humble. Two, don't be too humble. Don't be too humble. Never be a valley. Don't let people step on you. And don't feel bad about kicking back when people want to kick you. It's better to be a winner than to be a loser. It's better to live than die. And it's better to have a Jewish state that is hated by the whole world than an Auschwitz that's loved by it and know that. So we see there again on college campus how the rabbi worked, how he tried to instill Jewish pride into the young Jew, hopefully to get the Jew more interested in his Jewish heritage, give him a little Jewish pride, maybe he'll open a Jewish book one day. But the fact is that's a message for all of us. On one hand, we're humble in our dealings with our fellow man, with our neighbor, in personal matters, we stay humble. But when it comes to national issues, the Jewish people, there we have pride because after all, with the chosen people. As we say before, reading from the Torah, Blessed Hashem that you chose us from all the nations. That's Jewish pride. We always have to have that balance. That is, if we're insulted personally about something, you just have to swallow your pride sometimes, let it go. But if you're being insulted as a Jew, then you stand up for yourself. Then you gotta be a mountain. That's it for me. If you have any comments or any questions, you can email me at lennygoldberg 40 at gmail.com, Lenny Goldberg, 40, the number 40, Lenny with two N's, Lenny Goldberg, 40 at gmail.com. I'll be back next week, God willing, with some more.